We want to welcome everyone to this week's uh, ICEJ webinar series. Uh, we just showed a promo of uh, this uh, new launch of a weekly webinar on Thursday afternoons. Uh, today is a special five o'clock time, but we'll probably be doing it four o'clock going forward. Every week we're going to be rotating topics between Bible study, Torah study with some of our Jewish rabbi friends, We'll have uh, current affairs like we're having now uh, on the International Criminal Court. It's ruling against Israel. We'll be looking at some of our aid projects, uh, giving you more in-depth on the work that the Christian Embassy is doing here in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, around the world. And uh, we'll have uh, feast webinars and other things, a rotating topic every week. So please be sure to join us every week around this time on Thursday afternoons, Israel time, for our weekly webinar. And welcome uh, once again to part two of our special uh, program on the International Criminal Court's ruling that it could uh, investigate and probe and try Israel for war crimes in the Palestinian uh, and the territories, what they consider Palestinian state. Last week, we looked at uh, the whole background and context, got some good information from our guests. Uh, we had uh, a legal advisor uh, from the uh, foreign ministry of Israel, uh, Amit Hoyman, uh, who uh, gave us some uh, very good information, Israel's take on this. Uh, of course, Andrew Tucker from Think, who is with us again this week. And uh, today we're looking more at a call to action, take the things that we learned last week about uh, this ruling, how it was bad on both uh, the jurisdiction question and on the substance of uh, whether Israel's committed war crimes or not. And uh, we want to uh, now uh, bring everyone together on courses of action, a call to action. What can we do to help uh, um, uh, confront this move by the international community, this international criminal court? Uh, who are the friends and, and people we can partner with out there to, to uh, try and, and make a change in this? It's not set in stone. It's a long, long process. The wheels of justice uh, move slowly, and there's a really a opportunity here to make a difference for Israel in getting this uh, off of its back. And uh, we first uh, want to begin today's webinar with a message from um, uh, someone at the foreign ministry. We want to thank um, uh, Sharon Regev, who is the uh, head of the uh, religions, World Religions Department at the Foreign Ministry. She's the main liaison to the pro-Israel Christian community there, and she helped us get someone from their legal department last week. This week, she arranged for Ambassador Noam Katz. He's the Deputy Director General for Public Diplomacy at Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Because we're at Air of Purim, and uh, uh, happy Purim to everyone. Uh, this is an important Jewish holiday. They're all home with their families. They've given us a, a recorded message 
uh, and we want to thank them uh, again for cooperating with us, partnering with us in this uh, two-part webinar series on the ICC ruling. Just a little more background on Ambassador Katz. He served in the IDF, rose to the rank of a major, uh, earned a BA in history from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, he joined Israel's dip diplomatic corps in 1994, and he served in several postings uh, at the, uh, in the Israel Embassy in Washington, D.C. as their public uh, uh, diplomacy officer. Um, he's been uh, several postings in Eastern Europe and in Africa, including as Israel's ambassador to Nigeria, to Ghana, and to the West African economic community. And a, a special note to our topic today, Ambassador Katz was part of the official delegation at the 2001 Durban conference where this whole delegitimization campaign against Israel first started taking root. So Kay, if you can uh, play um, uh, Ambassador Katz's message for us, thank you. Shalom from Jerusalem. I would like to thank you for this opportunity to speak with you and for your ongoing support of the State of Israel. Tonight, we celebrate the holiday of Purim, and I will be reading from the Book of Esther later this evening. The Book of Esther is about the attempt of Haman, a villain and advisor to the King of Persia, to annihilate the Jewish people. It is a striking reminder of today's reality where the Iranian regime, led by radical ayatollahs, continually states its goal of annihilating the state of Israel, all the while making serious efforts at achieving nuclear capability. I can assure you that Israel is strong and will never let this happen. We thank God that today we have many friends, among them you. You have all been briefed before on the ICC pretrial chamber's decision that the court has jurisdiction in the Palestinian case. This decision is dead wrong, damaging, and destructive. It is wrong legally, morally, and practically. Legally, the ICC's decision is deeply flawed. From the very beginning, we said that the court does not have jurisdiction in the Palestinian case. Israel is not a party to the ICC and has not consented to its jurisdiction. In fact, only sovereign states can delegate jurisdiction to the court, and a Palestinian state does not exist. This is not only Israel's view, but the opinion of the presiding judge himself of the seven state parties who submitted their legal position to the court in advance, and of the countries like Germany, Austria, Australia, and the US who have all reacted against the court decision. The very strong minority report of the presiding judge who opposed the pretrial chamber's decision is proof that even in the court there is doubt on the issue of jurisdiction. If there is a doubt, then there should be no doubt. This should serve as a strong message to the prosecutor. But this is not just a technical issue. It is a moral one too. And morally, the court's decision 
is profoundly wrong and bad. The ICC was designed to confront the world's worst atrocities, but instead it has allowed itself to become a political tool. It is wrongfully chasing Israel, a democracy, on political issues that should be settled through dialogue. The quick establishment of diplomatic relations with the United Emirates, with Bahrain and Morocco recently, proved that this is the way to deal with political differences. An investigation will be extremely damaging to the relations between Israelis and Palestinians. I find it hard to believe that the toxic environment that opening investigation will create will be conducive to peace and to bringing Israelis and Palestinians together. Moreover, opening an investigation will erode the legitimacy of a court that has already been harmed by its reputation for chasing democracies, corruption, and wasting resources. For me, it would be a betrayal of the noble mission that the court was supposed to represent. Israel was in a small group of countries that supported the establishment of an international court to hold the worst violators of human rights accountable. Ultimately, however, we were suspicious that the court may be a twist of politicization, and this is why we didn't ratify the Rome Statute. We need you and everyone to voice strongly at every opportunity that the court has made a grave mistake that threatens the legitimacy and the values it was established for. This is essentially a litmus test. If the court continues to persecute Israel and open the door to politicization, then it won't be working for the principle it was created for, but instead will become another international body with limited legitimacy and limited capabilities. What the court needs is not to open investigation, but to save its own credibility. The court must be saved from continuing down this mistaken path. I've spoken about the court's decision, but I must say a few words about the Palestinian case. The allegations that have been made against Israel are false and vicious. They are an attempt to turn people who have simply defended themselves into criminals. They ignore the fact that Israel has historic claim to its ancestral land. These are exactly the things that would be and should be discussed around the negotiating table. We need strong voices saying that the court has no authority and no jurisdiction to open an investigation. We need people to echo these messages in the public sphere, in articles, in conversation, and on social media. To conclude, this decision is shameful, wrong, and destructive, and it should not be cooperated with. I thank you for your time today and hope that you will make sure your voices are heard.
Yes, uh, again, a uh, thank you to Ambassador Katz for his contribution tonight. It's a strong message that uh, we need to raise our voices, really in a way to save the court from undermining its own credibility by being manipulated uh, in, in this way by the Palestinians, uh, which it um, uh, dilutes the real power. The International Criminal Court was, was founded to to um, uh, really deal with and end impunity for uh, unimaginable crimes that shock the conscience. And here, uh, I don't think it's so shocking that a Jewish person builds a house in their ancient biblical homeland. This is the, the absurdity that we're dealing with here, and we can all raise our voice in, in this effort. Uh, we now want to go to uh, The Hague, where the International Criminal Court is situated, and our partners there are friends uh, the, at the THINK, the, the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation. Last week, we had Andrew Tucker, who's an international lawyer, uh, who helped uh, co-found this uh, initiative to be an asset of uh, a legal think tank uh, for the, uh, just in general, but especially for the pro-Israel Christian community worldwide, to have them as an asset for dealing with uh, some of the issues that Israel faces in the area of lawfare uh, more and more these days. And his colleague co-founder is Peter Hogendorn, the Director of Operations for Think. We uh, promoted him here on the, uh, the promo for this week. And uh, I, I really um, uh, am uh, eager to introduce him because he got a, he studied electronics, mathematics, and computer science at the Technical University of Delft, or as the locals there say, Delft. Uh, and that is where my wife is from. It's her hometown in Holland. So, uh, Peter. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good university. <laughs> and uh, he's been a senior business consultant, project manager, really has a, a long career in places like Hong Kong, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. He was also a volunteer, I guess, on a kibbutz here in Israel many years ago. But uh, in 2017, he co-founded with Andrew and others the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation, and he's their director of, uh, of operations now. And uh, I think uh, you will play a role, and then Andrew will also have a contribution. So, Peter, please. Uh, thank you very much, David, for this uh, kind introduction. Uh, in particular, to uh, make compliments to uh, the city of Delft, which indeed holds one of the oldest universities in the Netherlands. It is still a technical university, and it seems that I've drifted away from technology quite a bit. But it has taken me around the globe, and uh, wherever I was, I've always found people who I could share the love uh, for Israel that was a piece and parcel of my education. I myself was born in the green heart of Holland, born and raised in a Christian family with the love for Israel, and that has been uh, a crimson thread throughout my life. And I was only happy enough that when I uh, came to an age that many of you still are looking up to, but when you get retired, and you don't want to stop work, you look for an opportunity to do something really useful. And that was when I met Andrew and together 
we, uh, with a mutual friend of ours, we founded the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation four years ago. And what makes it special is that we are based in the Hague. That's the seat of the foundation. That's close to the institutions for international law. As you know, the International Court of Justice, which is a UN institution, is based in The Hague, in the former Peace Palace. But there's the International Criminal Court, uh, which is, by the way, not a UN institution, but my colleague Andrew will clarify that. And then all the international tribun tribunals, or many of those, are also taking place in The Hague. So from that perspective, we are well positioned. But uh, using uh, modern technology, we are able to grow an international network around the globe of international law experts who all share our vision. And that is a world of peace where countries live in peace together as neighbors and cooperate as expressed in the Charter of the United Nations. Um, we are not a Christian organization ourselves, but for sure we're Christian Zionists. And all the people in our network share the same mission and the same conviction that international law is being misused against the state of Israel. And that ultimately the effect of this is to the detriment of the Palestinian people. We believe that Israel Jews and Palestinians should and could live in peace together. And the actions that are actually taking place, also in the United Nations, are not in favor of the Palestinians and, of course, not in favor of Israel too. Yet, like you said, David, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. The Abraham Accords that were signed last year are a clear indication that there are Muslim people who realize that Israel is not the problem, but that Israel and good relations with Israel is a solution to many problems. In the region, Israel can be a beacon of light and peace and prosperity for the entire Middle East. So that is what drives us to, to have an equal treatment of the state of Israel and to bring justice and peace to the region. Now, as the subject of this webinar is the current case pending for the International Criminal Court about the situation in Palestine, we have over the last weeks conferred with the people in our network and uh, got all kinds of ideas that we are contemplating in order to keep the pressure on the new press prosecutor and to try and convince him not to pursue this case and to, uh, to drop the idea of an investigation. Um, I would like now to hand over to my colleague, Andrew, who will speak about the international legal details of this approach. Andrew, please go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, as you can see, we're sharing uh, a screen that's very effective and efficient. Um, what I'd like to share with you, we've prepared a little paper, which I think um, David and Moimir will be happy to, to share with participants. And I have a short... PowerPoint presentation, which I'd like to share with you. So if you'll allow me, I'll go to that presentation. And here we go. So um, just to back up uh, a, a little bit on where we got to, to uh, last week, 
Um, what I'd like to do is share with you, I, I think as we think about the arguments and the strategy for confronting this, we have to realize we have a decision by the pretrial chamber, which is not subject to appeal um, directly. Um, it is a decision on the jurisdiction of the court only. It's not a decision about what the court will necessarily do. However, the prosecutor, the current prosecutor, Mrs. Ben Suda, who finishes her term in June this year from Ghana, uh, she made it very clear in December 2019 that she's come to the view that in her view, uh, war crimes have been committed uh, on the territory of Palestine. So her question was, does the court have jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute those crimes? And that's why the question came to the pretrial chamber about uh, is Palestine a state party for the purposes of Article 12, the statute which governs um, the, the court's jurisdiction. Now, um, the, the ICC um, is set up by the statute of Rome. So everything that's done within the ICC is governed by that statute. The prosecutor, um, the new prosecutor is Mr. Karim Khan of, he's a UK barrister, a very highly rated QC uh, who has a practice in international criminal law. He will take over in June of this year. And he's currently on a project uh, for the United Nations in Iraq to protect cultural heritage from destruction by ISIS. So he's a very, very busy chap at the moment, and he won't really get his head around this until he joins the court in June. I think until June, the current prosecutor is not going to be taking any action, even although she said she intends to start an investigation uh, in all likelihood, it will be left to the new prosecutor to, to re-look at this question, whether to open the, uh, the investigation uh, or not. The, the ICC is governed by the assemblies of state parties. I think this is very important. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the assembly of state parties which has the overall governance of the ICC. So there are really two um, main uh, parties really who, um, who I think would be the subject of any action that might be taken. One is the assemblies of state parties. Now, obviously that consists of the states that Ambassador Katz has mentioned. A number of them have already expressed their dissatisfaction with that decision. However, probably it's fair to say a majority of the 123 state parties would be in favor of the court having jurisdiction. So any state party that wants to initiate some kind of uh, dispute within the state parties, which would be possible, um, would have to take into account the politics uh, of this, which would be challenging to say the least. The, the prosecutor, um, uh, it's not possible at the moment to directly, I think, influence the prosecutor in a formal sense. Obviously, in an informal sense, it is possible. But I think you'd have to think through very carefully about how to approach uh, the prosecutor. The prosecutor will work within the boundaries of the 
the Statute of Rome, that's going to be his job. So anything that he does or says will have to be governed by the provisions of the statute. So it's going to be important that any position that's taken is very carefully uh, positioned within the opportunity there is within the Rome Statute, and I'll come to that in a moment. Then obviously there's the court itself, which is a, a major player, and the court may have an opportunity later if an investigation is opened. Uh, and the court mentioned this in its decision two weeks ago, that there will be opportunities potentially for revisiting the question of jurisdiction later. The court said this is a, a view that's taken now to enable the prosecutor to move forward if she or he thinks that's the right thing to do. But uh, they clearly flagged the opportunity later for either uh, anybody who is uh, indicted or perhaps even a state party to raise the question of jurisdiction later. So it's important that, that that's borne in mind. I think another point just to mention, the court is under a lot of pressure at the moment. At the end of last year, um, an independent uh, panel of experts came out with their uh, conclusions and recommendations. Um, the court is going to have to go through a significant um, review of its own internal workings. And part of that is about setting its own priorities. And one of the things the experts have said very clearly is that the court must remain faithful to its core constituents uh, calling, and that is to focus on the most serious crimes. It has limited resources, and therefore that's going to be an argument going forward that can be made. Um, so as David's already mentioned, the court was established to end impunity for the most serious crimes not any crime. Um, and so in any decision that the prosecutor will make to open the investigation, which I think technically has not been done yet, um, decision will have to be made obviously to weigh up this case against the other situations that are before the prosecutor. And there are many um, that, that are currently before the prosecutor um, so um, one of the questions will be, is this really a serious enough case? And we'll come back to the moment when it comes to the issue of gravity, but the prosecutor clearly still has a discretion here. And that's the main point I think to notice. Um, the next point I think uh, concerning jurisdiction um, should this matter uh, arise again, the, I think the biggest problem with the decision that the, that the court has made, the pretrial chamber has made, is that what the prosecutor was hoping for was certainty, jurisdictional certainty. That's why she put the question to the court. And really, for many reasons, the decision that the court has come up with is giving much less certainty than the prosecutor uh, would have liked, because there are so many question marks about this question of statehood. And the choice that the court has made not to look at general principles of international law, I think is going to come back to, uh, as a boomerang, to haunt the court. Um, the International Criminal Court does not exist in a vacuum, it exists within 
the overall construct of international law. Uh, and I think um, one of the strongest arguments that should be made is that the court cannot isolate itself from general principles of international law. The, the interpretation the court has made to say that we only look at the, whether this is a state that has exceeded um, fundamentally undermines the, the idea that this court is set up by states and it derives its jurisdiction from states. It's a delegated jurisdiction. The court has no power, no authority to look at any case that is not given to it by the states which set up um, the International Criminal Court. And therefore, um, if Palestine does not have authority or jurisdiction to prosecute criminals, the court itself cannot have that jurisdiction. And therefore, the mere fact of being a party to the treaty is not enough to give the court jurisdiction. And that, that's an argument uh, we could go into in more detail, but I think is probably the, the main argument. Now, um, the court makes, I, I think, a second line of argument, and I, I'm going to mention really four lines of argument that I think are, are key to be thinking about as, as we think of, of um, lines of uh, attacking this decision or, or seeking to raise arguments before the state parties or before the prosecutor or the court itself. And the second one, apart from jurisdiction, is this question of self-determination. And really what the court is saying is that the fact that the Palestinians have a right to self-determination amounts to a right to, st to statehood. And the fact that the UN General Assembly has uh, acknowledged this right to statehood is enough to, to give the Palestinians um, a place at the table. And that's, I think, a fundamental misconception about the right to self-determination. Um, there are two kinds of self-determination, internal and external. This is not a case of decolonization. Uh, we're not talking here about a decolonization project process like um, the recent Chagas Islands case before the International Court of Justice. We're talking here about really an internal process which can only take place by way of negotiation between Israel and the Palestinians. There is no pathway outside negotiations for the Palestinians to achieve their goal of self-determination and they've agreed to themselves in the Oslo Accords. So the court has said that it's not necessary to look at the Oslo Accords. Uh, again, this is, this is really problematic because the Palestinians themselves, the PLO has committed to the Oslo Accords and therefore it's a limitation on the PLO itself. And under the Oslo Accords, the Palestinians have no criminal jurisdiction over Israelis. Uh, this is a really important point that I think needs to be stressed. I'll move on quickly uh, to the question of settlements. Um, there are two kinds of crimes that the prosecutor has said that she wants to investigate. The first are the crimes that have been committed in her view by uh, Hamas and by Israelis in relation to the Gaza conflict since 2014. Uh, they're war crimes potentially under the Rome statute. And this is more about 
disproportional use of force in the context of the conflicts that have been there um, in, in relation to um, the attacks on Hamas and also, of course, the more recent um, attempts by the Hamas to, to storm the fence. That's one set of crimes. The second set, which is completely different, is about settlements. Uh, and this is perhaps the most important crime that I think the prosecutor wants to uh, attack. This is Article 8 to B8 of the Rome Statute. This is the very provision that caused Israel not to become a party to the Rome Statute because they knew this would come back at them and be used as a political tool to attack settlements. Um, and this is a very difficult provision because it's attacking the policies of Israel to enable state settlements to be established, which is a very political issue. Um, we can't avoid the fact that it is in the Rome Statute, so the prosecutor also cannot avoid uh, the possibility of this being a crime. But this opens up a Pandora's box. It's going to be very difficult, I think, for the prosecutor um, for legal and factual reasons to get into this, uh, what I think will be a nightmare legally of establishing when has there been transfer or deportation of civilians, what is the occupied territory. Uh, the question of East Jerusalem will come up uh, definitely because um, Israel has asserted its sovereignty over East Jerusalem. Uh, so I think from a jurisdictional point of view, but also from the perspective of defining the crime, uh, it will be necessary for the, for the prosecutor to establish that East Jerusalem is not part of the state of Israel. Um, and there will be many factual issues. Israel is not going to comply with the court. It's not going to cooperate with the prosecutor. So the prosecutor will have no access uh, to facts on the ground, which requires Israel's cooperation uh, from. So this is going to be take a lot of resources from the court. And I think the prosecutor will have to ask himself the question, is this really a crime that merits the use of the court's very, very limited uh, resources? So I think that's they're the main issues that I think uh, would need to be um, dealt with um, going forward. Um, I'll stop share, sharing the screen there. I, I would just close by saying that um, I, I think thinking of, of a, a, a program, a strategy for uh, moving forward, I would highly recommend uh, uh, alliancing yourselves as much as possible in the member states with other organizations. Um, I would stress the fact that this is not just about defending Israel, but is also about defending the integrity of the court itself, in defending the integrity of the international criminal system, criminal law system, which is very young. Um, it's only a few decades old and the court is establishing itself. Uh, and by going down this political and highly political uh, process, the court is getting itself for the first time into an area which it's never entered into before. And this would be highly challenging, highly problematic. Um, 
And there's many opportunities going forward um, for the court to take a step back and either to not start an investigation or if it opens an investigation, not to go forward with a prosecution. And also the state parties, I think, have an interest in raising their voice within the assembly to make sure that the court's resources are not used to go forward. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and, and thank you, Peter. Those are all uh, valuable and, and practical uh, suggestions, good information. Um, I think it's uh, an excellent point you make that you just can't lobby the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. The office uh, isn't really geared to people coming and trying to petition them and such, but we can uh, try and have influence among the assembly of state parties. The 123 members of the International Criminal Court, our own, which are our own countries, and especially those uh, basically demo Western democracies who uh, filed amicus curiae in this case to, to uh, say there wasn't jurisdiction to begin this probe of Israel. Uh, and uh, uh, some important points there about, uh, you know, it's important arguments as we become active on this that uh, you're not only defending Israel, you're, you know, you're defending the integrity of the court, helping the court defend its own integrity. And I think it's an a very important point that uh, to allow this to continue, you are undermining, uh, I don't want to say the peace process, but the prospects for peace uh, in the region, because you take away any Palestinian incentive to have direct talks with Israel if you're handing them victories out here in UN forums and the ICC and whatever. This has been the game for uh, quite a, uh, two decades now of trying to get what they want, uh, bypassing direct negotiations with Israel, and that just undermines the entire prospects for peace. Okay, we want to now go to my colleague, uh, Dr. Mormir Kalos, uh, to uh, give some Christian Embassy uh, perspective on, on, you know, what we can be doing. The Christian Embassy is unique in that we have a broad network of uh, branches and we have serious activists and uh, serious leaders of these branches who we've done petitions before. I think just a couple years ago when the UNESCO was denying the Jewish connection to Jerusalem, we had a very simple campaign, send them Bibles. They got inundated with Bibles and uh, said, please stop. And the next year, the, the resolutions on Jerusalem were different. They acknowledged the Jewish connection to the city. So we've had good successful campaigns, particularly on the issue of Jerusalem. And uh, Mormir will walk us through this, but I'll just say uh, it's a pleasure to work with him. Uh, he uh, grew up in the behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia um, and became a believer then. He's a has a, a doctor's in mathematics and knows all the mathematician jokes <laughs> and, uh, and uh, has run the Czech branch. They've been very effective in, in lobbying for Israel there in Prague and really have an imp impact in the European Union and in the new democracies in Eastern Europe. And now working with us as our um, vice president of the Christian Embassy for International Affairs, Mormir. Thank you, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, participate in this important uh, webinar and the endeavor to, to do something. 
and um, I think Noam Katz put it uh, very clearly, the decision we talk about is shameful, wrong, and destructive, both legally and morally. And we believe it is our duty to raise our voices in defense of truth and moral clarity. And uh, we have already heard uh, something about the substance uh, of the cause last week and also this week about the possible implications of the decision of the pretrial chamber. Uh, and so, as David said, uh, now is the time to consider possible avenues of action. And uh, as we already heard, we have no direct access to the ICC as, as laymen, uh, but uh, we can approach the state parties, those who uh, ratified realm statute. So this is going to be our main approach, but we can also do something else. We can give some indirect support to this uh, advocacy effort by simply publicly raising our voices. So this will be the basis of uh, what we are suggesting. We're going to launch a global petition or a campaign. Uh, very likely we are going to address it to the Assembly of State Parties in The Hague, to the Secretariat. And uh, it will be calling on these governments of the state parties uh, to bring the issue to the attention of the Assembly. They, uh, as we heard, the ICC is governed by the Assembly and the state parties can initiate some actions. They can challenge the admissibility of the case, for instance. And uh, in parallel, we are going to work with activists, advocates in some of these countries, as many as possible. Uh, we will seek alliances with other groups and organizations. And uh, uh, we are looking for people who have the experience, who have the access to their uh, elected officials and the governments, and uh, we are going to offer them as a tool something which was drafted by our partners from Think. Uh, it's a brochure uh, summing up the case and some of the main arguments. So, uh, in other words, this lobbying effort will be supported by the global petition, which will show widespread popular concern over this issue. and. Uh, the more signatures we manage to collect, the stronger will be the political influence behind this whole campaign, and uh, the government should take note. Uh, I will just now repeat some of the points that we already heard, uh, some of the major flaws, uh, from the perspective of some talking points that we can use when we are trying to reach and lobby our governments. Uh, essentially, as we heard, the court has ruled that Palestine can be considered a state for the purpose of the Rome Statute, uh, which is itself a very problematic decision, uh, criticized also by the dissenting judge, and that the court therefore has jurisdiction over all the disputed territories, which include Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem. And then, uh, uh, as a consequence, the court could potentially open an investigation against Israel for alleged war crimes. And these crimes can include also the fact that Jews are building houses and kindergartens in a territory which is disputed. So that they can see already the absurdity of the argumentation. It is also important to note that this decision of the pretrial chamber <clears throat> consisting of three judges was not unanimous. Uh, and the presiding judge, Peter Kovac from Hungary, 
submitted his own 160-page dissenting opinion with the conclusion that, in his words, neither the majority's approach nor its reasoning is appropriate in answering the question. In other words, this is a very strong criticism of the majority decision itself. And uh, he uh, scathingly noted that uh, they have no legal basis in the Rome Statute, and even less so in public international law, and that acrobatics with provisions of the statute cannot mask legal reality. Now, I believe that these are strong words which could be used in uh, showing clearly that uh, the decision of the pretrial chamber itself is far from being clear, giving any legal certainty. Uh, on uh, quite the contrary, it is a strong signal of doubt about the whole admissibility of the case. What are some of the major flaws? The decision blurs the line between politics and law. Uh, the ICC, in its uh, determination that Palestine can be considered a state, has relied on political proclamations of the uh, United Nations General Assembly rather than on international law, which is a problem because this is the, uh, the task of the court to uh, be uh, a working according to principles, established principles of international law. And uh, we know that Palestine does not meet the criteria of statehood, which is something that is generally accepted. The Montevideo Convention provides that a state must possess a permanent population, a defined territory, a government, and the capacity to conduct international relations. And it, Palestine clearly does not satisfy these criteria. And the fact that the court uh, decided not to use this legal test should be brought to the, in, to the attention of the state parties, because those countries which actually established the ICC should have interest in upholding the integrity and the reputation of the court. So that's one of the arguments. Otherwise, the ICC would just go down the, the path of uh, becoming another politicized institution with very limited reputation and power. Secondly, the court, in trying to answer the question to which territory this jurisdiction should extend, it has in effect defined borders, but this is certainly not the role of the court to do. And in doing so, it's also remarkable the way how they did it. They simply accepted one side, the maximalist Palestinian territorial claims, which include all of Gaza, West Bank, and even East Jerusalem, to which uh, uh, Israel uh, has claimed full sovereignty. And they did not consider the Israeli position at all. By doing this, the court basically, in fact, prejudged the outcome of negotiations. And we know that negotiations is the only mechanism that can settle this dispute and define the borders if you So as a, as a consequence, the such approach by the court rewards Palestinian intransigence, undermines the prospects for peace. And now this is another talking point to the governments because most governments publicly support the negotiated settlement, the so-called two-state solution or whatever else might come out of it, but a negotiated settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. So it should be in the interest of the states to point out 
the uh, flaws of this decision, the fact that that kind of decision, prejudging the outcome of negotiations, goes against the stated policy. Thirdly, the court has disregarded the Oslo Accords. Again, very important point that um, Andrew elaborated on uh, very clearly. Uh, the Oslo Accord stipulates clearly that the Palestinian Authority has no jurisdiction over Israeli citizens anywhere in the disputed territories. So no matter if we consider PA a state, no matter what the borders are, it is absolutely clear that they do not have any jurisdiction over Israelis. Therefore, they cannot offer the, their jurisdiction to the court because they don't have any. And uh, that's one of the most fundamental flaws of the whole decision, uh, because by ignoring valid agreements, the court simply jeopardizes the binding nature of any international agreements. And that the result can only be chaos. And uh, we recommend that especially the witnesses to the Oslo agreements should voice their alarm at such a turn of events, recalling that the witnesses include the USA. So even though the US is not party to the ICC, it is the witness to the Oslo agreements. So it should take action when it uh, sees that the foundations are being destroyed. Then the next uh, party is the European Union. So any state of the EU uh, would find an argument uh, to use. And then Norway and then Russia. And finally, fourthly, uh, I believe there's another good argument consisting in the fact that the majority chose to ignore the opinion, the written submissions of seven states, parties to the ICC, which had argued that Palestine does not fulfill the criteria for a state. They had submitted uh, at the call of the pretrial chamber their submissions already a year ago. And my comment is that their involvement is unprecedented because they did not make their submissions in their own defense. Rather, they waded in on an issue which does not directly involve them. So it could be argued that they did so because they felt it was a matter of principle. It was something really important, and I think they were right. So they had made their submissions, uh, and then uh, a year ago, and when the decision of the pretrial chamber was announced two weeks ago, they went public again and they repeated their original stance. They said, this decision doesn't change anything in their opinion. They still don't consider Palestine a state according to international law. So uh, we suggest that these countries have interest to continue pursuing this cause at the ICC, do something about the fact that they have been ignored and uh, they could be encouraged to bring it up to the attention of the whole assembly. Uh, just to recall, the seven countries are Australia, Austria, Brazil, the Czech Republic, Germany, Hungary, and Uganda. So uh, I think the first priority would be to look for our allies in these seven countries and to approach uh, their governments and encourage them also with the help of our petition to to do something about it. Uh, but there are many more states which uh, were silent up to now, but who could also be approached. And uh, this is where we really rely on our global network of uh, friends and organizations and allies who could uh, start some action. 
So in summary, we believe that there are steps that could be taken. They should be done uh, in the direction towards the member states. And uh, in addition, we call upon our global constituency to make a public stand for Israel, public stand for the truth, for common sense, by joining the petition against the decision of the ICC. And uh, we call upon these people, these friends and allies to run with the cause, approach the governments and encourage them to, to go forward. You know, uh, that reminds me of uh, my famous uh, favorite quote by George Orwell. His quote is saying that sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious. I'm afraid we are coming to such a time and uh, we should make an effort so that the obvious is not blurred by uh, strange arguments or flawed arguments and that the obvious is restated again and again. Thank you. Thank you, Mormir. That was excellent. Uh, I'm writing as fast as I can here, so please share your notes with me. Though, and uh, uh, just to reiterate that, um, uh, you know, it's not like you can just lobby the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to drop this. We're hoping the new prosecutor who comes in in June is going to be reasonable and really, you know. Uh, serious about uh, the role he's playing, very unique and important role in international for the international community, uh, and uh, realize this is a, a waste of time and wrong in many ways. But uh, we will be trying to, you know, have a, a voice and an influence, and we're encouraging everyone to do this based on what we're learning in this webinar and material that we're going to hand out. That. Uh, um, you know, our own countries, uh, whatever country you're from, they are also in, you know, other UN forums or, or in UN forums. The, uh, there's 123 states in the, uh, in the International Criminal Court, and we're going to try and, uh, you know, it's good to talk to anyone, but if, especially if you're in one of these seven countries, uh, Australia, Austria, Germany, Hungary, Czech Republic, Uganda, uh, I, I forgot the the seventh one. Brazil, Brazil, Brazil. Yeah, and uh, those are especially important that they've already taken the initiative uh, to very strongly oppose uh, this, and a lot of it has to do with um, uh, the whole question of the court wrongly, wrongfully uh, extending its jurisdiction, uh, as we pointed out. Uh, Mormir, I think it's interesting. I, I did a, a little study um, of, uh, you know, uh, about uh, how many states have been accepted as member states of the United Nations, won their independence, been recognized as states under the Montevideo Treaty. This was set up, you know, decades ago, uh, part of sort of the Westphalian system that we have today that a nation can be born in a day. You can get recognized as a state on one day and have a birthday. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but today you can get recognized as a state if you meet the four main criteria and, and the majority of the international community ex, uh, accepts you, recognizes you, and especially it has to be done through the UN Security Council and not the 
um, the General Assembly. But let's say since 1967, I took that as my takeoff date uh, in modern times, that uh, there have been over 75 countries who went through the process, presented their credentials as a state. We're, we're, uh, we have a defined territory. We are, have a government in control of it. There's a people who identify, we're uni united in this identity as being from this state, the, the main criteria you have to prove. 75, I think uh, South Sudan was number 76 just a couple years ago. And so in 50 some years, you had over 75 countries. That's more than one a year that has been uh, accepted as a legal member of the, the uh, world community, uh, the community of nations. And Palestine is still trying to get in its foot in the door and get accepted without making peace with Israel. And they've been trying to do it this whole time and still haven't really done it. And you know the question is why, and and the, the the problem is they've so tried to manipulate international law, in uh, in order to get statehood, so that they could then continue the conflict with Israel from that more advantageous position, and uh, and so far every time they declare a state, it's sort of stillborn. And I think that's an important and uh, an interesting fact that all these other nations have been accepted among the family of nations and Palestine is still trying to do it in a way that uh, avoids making peace with Israel. And I think these, that is a very strong argument now that the International Criminal Court is just another uh, bypassing and runaround of direct talks with Israel to make uh, uh, a deal there and, uh, and uh, gain their self-determination um, that way. Um, we, we will be organizing a petition, an online petition for people to sign up. Uh, our branches around the world will give you more information on that as it's set up. Our US branch, Susan Michael, who's with us, is gonna help with that. Daryl Heading, the, uh, we've had uh, good experience uh, between here in Jerusalem and the US branch, especially in some of these online petition drives. Um, we'll have information coming out that, uh, you know, gives you also uh, uh, what you need, the background, the facts, to uh, you know, make reasonable, uh, sound arguments for our position. And uh, we also are going to start a social media campaign. And I'll just uh, share this for a minute. Okay, it should be here. Okay, I hope everyone can see this. Uh, it's just going to be simple little posters that can be, you can post this on Facebook, share it, uh, forward it and such. Uh, just saying this is a war crime. This is not a war crime here. We have a nice symmetry between Hamas firing uh, rockets from populated areas into Israeli towns and civilian areas. 
which is a double war crime. You cannot uh, embed your military forces in the middle of civilians and use them as human shields and then target uh, at the same time uh, civilians, purely an instrument of terror, these uh, Qassam rockets from Gaza. And, uh, and then it's uh, juxtaposed against the Israel's Iron Dome system, which is a missile defense system uh, uh, that shoots down these rockets and protects. It's not an offensive weapon against the Palestinians, but a defensive weapon that uh, is an illegitimate act of self-defense. And this is basically a, a, a social media campaign we're going to launch to just keep driving this message in the public sphere. Uh, here's another example with a little more detail at the bottom, but you've got uh, the, uh, the, a mass grave from the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia in 1995, which uh, a special tribunal was because of the, the special tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, and also the Rwanda massacres that was set, uh, the Rwanda genocide, the, the, both of these special tribunals were set up in The Hague to try war crimes. And that's why the International Criminal Court was set up ar around 20 years ago, so that you don't have these odd hack special tribunals, you have a, a permanent standing tribunal, but it's only for the most outrageous cases and that's that's an important message that uh, it's so diluting it uh, when you apply it to and try and drag Israel in on this long politicized conflict where Israel is playing by the rules. And this is juxtaposed against the female Israeli border guard, border police, uh, who's standing guard in Jerusalem, again, a legitimate uh, right of self-defense against this constant terror and armed conflict with Israel's face for decades. And uh, one more example, we may, we're probably gonna tweak some of these and work on them a bit, but here we have, uh, of course, one of the famous photos. I think it's the most shared photo or used photo on the internet from the Holocaust. Elie Wiesel is right here. It's the barracks at um, Buchenwald, just, uh, moments or a day after they were liberated. And here's these emaciated uh, Jewish prisoners, um, Holocaust survivors, uh, and then uh, the German Nazi officials were found guilty of war crimes against the Jewish people. They're a bid to make Europe Judenrein at the Nuremberg trials, a, again, a special tri tribunal to try war crimes. And this is juxtaposed, this is not a war crime. Here's some young Jewish boys playing after school in a settlement in, in, uh, in Judea and the West Bank. And uh, you know we contend the modern day return of Jews to their ancient biblical homeland and indigenous people to this land. It's a matter of historic justice and it's certainly not a war crime. So we'll be putting those out there uh, when you see them. Uh, you know, make sure to forward them, share them with people, uh, and uh, try and make good use of that. We'll have a whole series coming out as we develop these in coming weeks. Okay, let's see if there's any questions for our friends in The Hague or for Mormir. Uh, I'm from Uganda, okay. Uh, someone asked, I think we've just named these nations again, about Uganda. Um, that uh, uh, it was one of the seven nations 
that uh, filed um, uh, opinions with the uh, the um, the special chamber, the pretrial chamber, the three judge chamber, who handled the question from the the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court of whether the court had, she said, we think there's been war crimes committed in this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians in the Palestinian areas. Do we have jurisdiction to try these, to investigate them? And they, this uh, pretrial chamber said yes. And there were seven nations, including Uganda, who raised very significant uh, um, objections to this. And it's one of the nations that we feel will be very helpful going forward to keep challenging on that issue. Um, uh, uh, David, we have a question yes. from... Um, yes. From Christine. Okay. Christine Williams. Momir, this question is for you, but it's also for anybody else that might want to weigh in. Um, one of our um, attendees was talking about, it's, you guys did a superb job in explaining, first of all, why this is just not a legal investigation. And the comment was case closed. But the delegitimization of Israel, the, the, the message it sends out to Iran that the ambassador established so clearly leads to a question I have, and I'm hoping that you could perhaps give us some guidance. There are many watching from different regions of the world and wondering what could they do at a grassroots level. There are many larger organizations sending out letters to the ICC, and that's very important, including to Karim Khan. But in terms of a grassroots level, I'll, I'll illustrate a quick couple of examples why I have a grave concern here when it comes to um, where Israel stands right now. If you look at the US and you look at the Biden administration who has come forward in support of Israel and has concerns about the ICC, you still have Ilhan Omar pressing Biden to change that position. And in addition to that, news came forward today that um, South Korea has released $7 billion into the coffers of Iran of frozen assets after consultation with Biden. I find this very concerning. And then you have the Canadian government that switched um, sides and started to vote um, on the Palestinian issue for the Palestinians, pro-Palestinians at the UN. And at the beginning of this, there was a statement supporting the ICC, but now perhaps under pressure, there has been an about face and it now supports Israel. But I'm seeing some contradictions and I'm wondering at a grass roots level, whether it's time perhaps, where people on an individual level, whatever is feasible as you go from country to country, to lobby certain individuals, you look at a man like Cruz, for example, in the States, to lobby individuals that could raise their voices in parliament or in Knesset. And another example is the Israel Law Center, because they're tabling a, um, um, a bill now to go through Knesset that will make it illegal in Israel for anybody to participate with the International Criminal Court, otherwise face prison sentences or, um, or penalties. And it, it is totally right. But how do we work at the grassroots level with groups like the Israel Law Center with certain politicians to, able, to be able to make the larger politicians that may be anti-Israel more accountability to the general public and of course, to what is just on an international level? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I would say that this is a, a very much long-term issue. You, you 
cannot uh, just change uh, the, uh, the feelings and the, the opinions overnight. Uh, in my opinion, uh, you have to really start making relationships with people, with local politicians. Uh, it's easier to, to find a friendly voice in the parliament than in the government necessarily, unless you have a friendly government. Uh, but we can always start in the parliament. And I would recommend wherever you are, uh, if you are in a country where the ICJ has a, has a branch already, has an existing structure, then you can uh, pick up with them. Uh, you can also find allies in other organizations. The situation will be very different country to country. And then it just takes a sustained effort. You need to find people who would listen to you. You would need to convince them. You would, and what, what always helps is if these people, if you approach a, an elected official, if they see that you are not alone, in fact, that there are people behind you. This is why we are launching these campaigns. We are doing petitions because if you can say, well, there are thousands of people from my country who uh, are, have signed this petition, then it is a signal that this is something that every elected official should, should care about. And so that's the general, general uh, approach, I would say. David, would you like to comment? Yeah. Um, I'd add that, uh, you know, this is the product of uh, probably many years, many, many years of the Palestinians lobbying the prosecutor because they're in a position where they have uh, countries in the members of the, Internet, of the International Criminal Court who were helping them. And it's a serious uh, marker uh, and a serious advance on the Palestinian agenda. And I think it helps if we stay focused on these issues. There's always new things that come up every day that upset us and we want to go. But if you're going to have a campaign like this, I think one of the things that helps us is that this is a slow process and you have time to build an educational campaign and an activist campaign and who knows who is the Esther out there, to use the Purim analogy, who is the person out there that could really make a difference and start turning this around. You find someone like Ted Cruz in the Senate to be a champion in the Senate on this. You find someone in your own parliament who just won't you know, let this rest. Uh, because you're up against something that's taken many years to build to this. And uh, Israel knew it was coming, but it looks, uh, you know, to criminalize building a house uh, uh, in, uh, you know, your ancient heartland or even in East Jerusalem. It's just outrageous that, that uh, you know, when the world was outraged by the Holocaust and said these things are war crimes, should never happen again, that that is now turned as a club against Israel. Uh, and we had a question about uh, how do we get some of these materials? We have a briefing paper by our friends at Think in The Hague that we're going to send out. We'll also send out uh, some notations ourselves suggestions on, you know, the sort of arguments uh, that 
can be made. Uh, for most of uh, the people here watching, you registered for this webin webinar uh, and we'll send uh, those materials uh, because you've given us your email address. We'll send you those materials uh, so that you'll have them, but we'll also have it uh, through our own email lists, and our other email lists and on our website and on uh, uh, our social media and so you should be visit our website visit back to our Facebook page and there'll be material there as well that you can take advantage of in this anything to add from the Hague you have to unmute yeah yeah no I think it's uh, I think it's a long-term thing it's about changing the narrative as well um, you know, the, the problem is as well that um, the, the, you know, I think Jerusalem is a, is a critical one here. I, I would also single out East Jerusalem because it's so unique legally and politically um, to characterize Jews living in East Jerusalem as settlers uh, who have been transported or deported there is, is totally absurd. Um, it's a very fundamental historical narrative that we have to, to reclaim. And I think just, again, under, un, underscoring the, 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 the historical um, injustice and absurdity of this, uh, especially the settlements, I, I'm the most concerned about. Yeah, and, and you, you, you also have to add that uh, it was the international community itself a hundred years ago that recognized uh, the, the historic Jewish connection to the land. And even in the, in the um, British mandate uh, and the San Remo conference resolutions uh, said uh, they would uh, encourage close Jewish settlement on the land. They use that phrase and they weren't talking about it. there was no green line then, it was all through the land of Israel between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And uh, there's really nothing in international law that has abrogated that right of close Jewish settlement in the land. Uh, and whether Israel wants to cede uh, you know, its sovereignty, its claim to some of these areas in order to achieve peace with the Palestinians, that's their decision as a democratic state. Uh, but will stand with their claim to the land and the right of these people to live there. And it's, it's important that you're turning into a war crime, something that 100 years ago, the, the international community said, we not only accept and recognize, but we encourage it and we will work to encourage it. And that's an absurd result that, uh, you know, the, jo the Jewish people suffered through the Holocaust after that. And now you want to turn it as a weapon against them. It's outrageous. Okay. Any other questions? I know we've got our guys from Australia here, Dan Stega, Bill uh, um, Rizopoulos. Australia was uh, um, uh, one of the countries that stood up and, and opposed this. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm glad that Australia made uh, this time a better uh, took a better position. Let me just quickly read to you the quote actually from our, um, 
Foreign Minister Marise Payne. Uh, she's, she has expressed deep concerns and made them very clear about the, um, the, uh, the, the ruling and uh, our position is the following. Um, Australia does not recognize a state of Palestine. Matters relating to borders can only be resolved through direct negotiations between Israel and Palestinians, which is exactly what Think uh, mentioned earlier as well. We made clear in our observations submitted to the pretrial chamber that Australia does not recognize the right of any so-called state of Palestine to accede to the Rome statue of the ICC, and they should not exercise jurisdiction in this matter. And I think bringing it right back as well to the statehood, um, where we really have a, um, you know, when, when you climb up a mountain, you got something in the mountain that you can hold on to, and uh, challenging that position there, and uh, and therefore as well the jurisdiction derived from that. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, a good statement this time. So uh, it's good to hear, and I think even the encouragement there to the people uh, listening to this is really. Um, finding uh, quickly, and it's pretty obvious by looking at past rulings and past standings, where are the people standing that represent your country in this, in this matter? And then you have to, you know, uh, you know, even reaching out, you know, to the ICJ, as it was mentioned in the chats, but also, you know, the collaboration between Think, you know, uh, and the ICJ to even get support from us to have an adapted and, and an agile strategy, you know, every single country needs to have a strategy that is, that is really working based on the people that you've, you got to play with by the rule book that you have in your country. And, and uh, um, yeah, so that's a quick comment there from my side. Thank you. Okay. Anything from uh, Susan Michael, our national director in the U.S., or Daryl, or deputy who uh, is helping set up the online petition? Uh, the petition is going to be addressed to the uh, the uh, assembly of state parties, the 123 members states of the International Criminal Court, to try and we think that's the place where you can lobby, and it'll get to the various diplomats who represent these countries at the ICC. And uh, they meet, uh, I think, once or twice a year to oversee the operations of the court, the judges, the prosecutor, and whatever. But they really have a lot of say in, in how it should be operating. Anything, Susan or Daryl? Well, uh, Daryl, if you want to jump in, feel free. I'll, I'll just say we've talked about it a lot here. And um, we feel like that there'll be a strong grassroots campaign here addressed to the ICC. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll do our best to get large numbers on a grassroots campaign um, to respond to uh, Christine's comments. We're very aware of the problem uh, with the Biden administration, particularly regarding Iran. And so we are, um, aware that that's where our efforts should go if we do a, a campaign to our government. Um, so right now we see the ICC campaign as uh, geared, focused towards the ICC, and, but we think it'll be a lot of support for it at the grassroots level. So Daryl, do you wanna add something? Yeah, I agree, um, Susan, thank you for pointing it out. Um, I agree. I think this will be a good campaign even for Americans. We've, it's been noted, of course, that America is not a member um, of the RCT, RCT, it's not a member state, 
Um, of course, that the Biden administration actually has come out and condemned this ruling. So there's that part of it, which is, um, you know, you can't really lobby our government to do anything. And the government here has already spoken out in, in, in the capacity that it can. But um, I think we're going to um, formulate this campaign in a way that Americans can still voice their disapproval um, of what's happening um, and stand up for Israel. And there's a lot of Americans who we know are on our list and even beyond our list, we believe. Um, that would be more than happy to take a stand on this issue for Israel and give them a voice on it. Just to speak a little bit more to some of what Christine mentioned and as well as Andrew uh, regarding some of the issues going forward. Um, I think it's good that we take a response now to this issue. I do think um, we'll be looking ahead as well um, and taking that long view on how to respond. We saw it with um, the issue of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem um, that took, you know, almost 20 years to get to that point. But the precedent that it's set today for Israel, and especially here in the U.S. with the Biden administration that's come in and said they're not going to shift the embassy, they didn't see a problem. Of course, everything's gone to plan. I think it's a good model for us looking forward on some of these deeper issues that we can look at. And even of the issue of East Jerusalem, I do not believe that the, the Jerusalem issue is by any means settled. And um, we can look to campaigns and to lobby our governments and potentially here in the U.S. Um, to look for ways that we can secure Israel's um, sovereignty over United Jerusalem um, more than just having an embassy, embassy there. So there are, there's that long view, and I think we can circumvent some of the issues that Israel's coming up, up against um, in future with what they're facing, both these attacks on its right to its self-defense and its attack to its right of self-determination um, and the territories that it was given. So um, it's a twofold thing. So we'll, we'll be hitting this now and hitting it hard um, and getting out there with some great, um, some great visuals. Thanks for the graphics, David. Those look fantastic um, for social media. Um, and at the same time, planning on what we can do to really bolster um, Israel's position in the long term. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we also have a comment question from our friend in Germany, Christoph Schwamm-Weber. Please. Thank you very much. Um, I think for us in Germany, the social media campaign is something very good because one of the three pictures is also appealing to the history. So many German people will not have the time or they are not very documented to uh, study all that uh, legal uh, things, but uh, once uh, we are in the situation that uh, Jews will be uh, accused for crimes, we obviously will say Germany cannot support this after all the crimes that we did. So I might say this not for every country in the world, but uh, at least for us Germans and some other European countries, if the global petition had, could contain at least one sentence appealing to the history, yeah, mm -hmm. must not be more, but one sentence that may not make sense for Americans or other Africans, but for Europeans, one uh, sentence appealing to the history that could be more convincing for people because it appeals to emotions than uh, a, a lot of uh, legal arguments that are very good, but not, not so much reaching our culture because of our special history that we have with the Jewish people. Thank you. Thank you, Christoph. It's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, I feel uh, I want to just pray right now that Germany would really take the lead in fighting this. And I think it's appropriate. It's moral. 
and uh, and it would be just very encouraging, I think, to many, many Israelis too. Uh, and uh, we just pray that German leaders right now, our Heavenly Father, would really uh, feel a burden uh, that they can't rest until uh, they, they see this disposed of properly. And we appreciate Germany uh, uh, opposing this, but uh, it's probably the key voice out there in the family of nations uh, on this question right now, particularly on, on this. Um, that we are drafting up the petition language by the nature of it. It's got to be sort of broad and consensus where to get the most people to sign up on it. But uh, that is a very, very valid point. Okay. Uh, I'd have uh, a comment yes, just, uh, I'd have a comment just on the timing of the petition. It's always good to, to look at a, a point in time when we want to conclude it and present it and then report back to those who signed it. And uh, as uh, it has been said already, this is uh, a fortunate window of opportunity when the prosecutor is uh, finishing her time and the new prosecutor is coming to the office in June. So we believe we will set the, the deadline, the, the target date for the end of the petition sometime before Mr. Khan is uh, entering his new position probably sometime in June. So uh, this gives us a few months, which is just a perfect opportunity. And there is also a real change that at this time of changing of the guards, this petition could have more impact than otherwise. Okay, if that's it for now, we just wanna thank uh, our guests again. Uh, of course, uh, thanks to um, uh, Ambassador Noam Katz and Sharon Rega from the Foreign Ministry for their contribution. Hope they're doing well with their families uh, celebrating Purim. Thank you again to uh, Peter Hogendorn and to Andrew Tucker at Think in the Hague. Uh, it's really great to have you all as partners in this in this effort, and thank you for your contributions. Thanks for everyone for joining us. More Mir, uh, Thank you again for leading our, our branches on this initiative. And, and it's great to have all your experience in dealing with uh, political leaders uh, and the successes you've had there uh, in Prague and Eastern Europe and in other ways. And uh, we just uh, want to invite everyone back uh, next week. Um, trying to think, what, what is next week's webinar? Um, it's, it's skipping me right now. But uh, we'll have a notice out uh, uh, about it. And uh, let me see. Um, uh, and uh, we'll have every Thursday now at 4 o'clock Israel time a webinar on current events, on Bible, uh, Bible teaching, uh, or uh, uh, Torah study with our, our Jewish rabbi friends. Uh, the aid uh, projects that we're doing, uh, and uh, the feast webinars as well, promoting our upcoming feasts. So join us next Thursday. At I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be Bible study next week. So we Bible study. Yeah, Bible. I uh, I believe uh, it may be a Purim message from Jurgen. <laughs> I saw him on here, and uh, I hope that's it. Okay, so uh, thank you all again for joining us. Here's the little promo on the ICEJ webinar series uh, once again as we close.